also a tin teardrop. But I'm doing well, well. I run on laser beams. <laughs> Star Welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Walker, guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's sprawling and incomparable 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Sugar and Spikes, which is track six on side three, track 19 if you're on a CD of Trout Mask. Uh, it was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March of 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Personnel is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rolo, on guitar. Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens, on guitar. Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton, on bass. John French, a.k.a. Drumbo, on drums. And Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, on vocals. Length of this track is 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, today, I have the honor of uh, speaking with the author of, uh, making sure I'm going to get the title right here, A New Day Yesterday, UK Progressive Rock in the 1970s, and uh, mo- uh, saliently for this podcast, the man who quite literally wrote the book on Captain Beefheart, uh, Mr. Mike Barnes. Mr. Barnes, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So um, you have dedicated a great deal of your uh, professional life to um, progressive music uh, and avant music in general and and Beefheart in particular, writing the, the Captain Beefheart biography that I've referenced on, I believe, every single episode of the show. It's been an, an invaluable tome that has, has been at my right hand for every episode. Um, what how did you first encounter the music of Captain Beefheart? I think like many people, I first encountered the music of Captain Beefheart with someone's older brother's version of Trapmaster Replica, where they'd play the sort of uh, kind of comedy bits like Fast and Bulbous and all that kind of stuff. Uh, That's right, the Mascara Snake. And uh, I thought that was all, all sort of amusing, but I didn't really listen to most of the rest of the music, which sounded uh, rather forbidding. But... Uh, but later on, uh, I bought I, j- just on spec. I, I someone gave me for some reason a really badly recorded cassette, a badly duplicated cassette of Strictly Personal, which isn't exactly well produced anyway. Mm-hmm. And I thought that sounded interesting. And then there was one of those reissue sets, which is uh, like uh, like a double album of the Spotlight Kid and uh, Lick My Decals Off Baby. So I thought, okay, well I might as well buy this and I played Spotlight Kid and thought this is interesting sort of blues rock and played Lick My Decals Off Baby and in common with many people I just thought what the hell is this all about I and mean, it didn't <laughs> seem it was very disturbing and it didn't seem as though anything had any relation to anything else and uh, I thought oh god yeah all right well maybe I'll, I'll come back to that but I was quite into kind of fairly experimental stuff I was starting to get into I was, I was probably about about 20 when I bought that. And um, I was kind of drawn back to this kind of monstrosity in the uh, second half of the, you know, the double gatefold sleeve. And I thought, I'm going to give this another listen. And I still couldn't get into it. But I thought, well, you know, it kind of kept drawing me back. I thought, I'll give it another chance. You know, there's something about this that's so odd that I really need to try and try and sort of sort of understand it and then i remember distinctly that the time i was listening to dr dark on on lick my decals off baby and, and staring out the window at a tree i was just daydreaming and i thought oh actually i can hear what's going on here there's like these sort of correspondences between the instruments because of course it's written in a similar uh fashion to trout mass replica you know not, mm-hmm. e- not 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 immediately recognizable quite what's going on uh and I thought, oh, I can hit. I thought, wow, I can understand. I thought, yeah, that guitar's playing the same as the hi hat, and the bass. Well, I'm not sure what what the bass is doing. It seems to be playing a different <laughs> song, but it seems to somehow coalesce. I thought, oh, I get what they're doing now. I just thought, wow, <laughs> and it literally was. It was. It was one of the few times I've had a moment of uh, a proper moment of epiphany. I just thought, whoa, yeah, this is incredible. I've never heard anything like this. And then, of course, I listened to to the rest of the album and uh, thought, oh, this is amazing. And um, 
I would occasionally, if we had some, some, I was a student at the time, if some friends came around for a bit of a, shall we say, a bit of a smoking session, uh, which mm-hmm. I used to do in those days, I, I would slip, lick my decals off onto the uh, record player and there'd be like, <laughs> people be like begging me to take it off, you know, because <laughs> they, they hadn't been through that kind of initiation process that I'd been through. And so, of course, when I actually got around to buying Trout Master Replica, it wasn't a shock at all because I I was already primed for that sort of music, and I just I loved the the uh, it's probably some of it isn't quite so extreme as the most extreme parts of Lick My Decals Off Baby, although it's fairly close. But I I thought yeah, this is just such a I always find it a en- very enjoyable album to listen to. It's like a massive scrapbook of poetry and imagery and uh, amazing music and humour. Uh, you know, observations of, of humanity and philosophy and all sorts of stuff. And I just, I, I remember feeling this feeling, I'm not exaggerating, of, of sort of <laughs> mental liberation when I played it. Uh, and again, people were not, didn't necessarily share my enthusiasm, but but I, I thought, yeah, this is, this is just something about this. It had this incredible energy to it as well, which I don't think is often mentioned. This sheer kind of creative it's like the creative and also kind of musicianly energy that just completely, uh, you know, I was obsessed with it. And I was, I listened to other albums by uh, Beefheart, and I just there was something about there was something about it that really chimed me with me on a very deep level. It's just not, you know, it's not easy to quantify, but it's that yeah, that feeling of liberation, freedom, and like you know, these huge possibilities of of what you could do with music and words just opened up before me. That sounds melodramatic, but that's exactly how I felt. No, I, I absolutely 100% get that. So with, with Lick My Decals Off, you had kind of had, you had gone through that initiation to epiphany process that that others others get with, with Trout Mask when they first hear it. Um, so when you when you came to Trout Mask, it wasn't as, as uh, initially alarming as it, as it might otherwise be. I, I love the, the, um, when you're talking about the energy and the creativity, the fact that it is a double album. And, and I've, I've talked about this with some other people almost feels like a look at how much we've done. Look at how much creative work there is here. There's all this music and the riffs rarely repeat. And it's just like, look at this immense river of creativity that has come out of this, this band. It's like a, a, it is kind of exhilarating to have this presentation of so much work and so much creativity that has so little connection to anything that you might otherwise have, have previously heard. Well, absolutely. I mean, and you can't say that about many albums, can you really? Uh, not, not very many. No, no. <laughs> and it's um, uh, just creating this new kind of uh, musical vocabulary out of, out of his, um, out of his piano, piano bangings and whistlings, and uh, is um, uh, sorry, briefly, briefly distracted because I think the cat wants out. Um, but the uh, it, it it really is this um, exhilarating feeling of as you as you put it, a mental liberation of uh, on on some episodes. There's been I've I've talked with people about what kind of influence Van Vliet music and the magic band's music has had and because i i read something not long ago where someone was saying oh you know nobody sounds like captain beefheart the magic band and i kind of feel like if you hear them i think oh this is great and then immediately set out to create something that sounds like that you're missing the point Mm. because the the point of of beefheart and van vliet is you can reshape rock music into whatever you want it to be there there is unlimited potential and I think what I've been thinking of recently is uh, I was reading something that I did an interview with Bill Harker wrote Zuton Rolo for the book. And mm-hmm. the the kind of process by which these things were assembled, I think people coming from a, more of a blues rock background where you have like more established rules and you, you learn scales and you, you will play in the same time signature generally in the same key. Uh, he thought that some of the random nature, almost as he saw it, of the compositional process was just like assembling a big pile of rubbish and then saying, right, you know, that's it. Mm-hmm. Or was like saying, well, you know, it could have been anything that he was doing. 
you know, any random sort of bashing around on the piano. But what really strikes me, or what's striking me recently, I was thinking about it, is that it could so easily have sounded absolutely awful. I mean, I think the fact that Troutmark's replica doesn't sound terrible is quite astonishing because, uh, you know, the fact that Don Van Vliet was just sailing off with this incredible confidence that it was going to work. Because you imagine how easy it would have been for it not to work. Oh, yeah. There's a massive input from the musicians to make it work. But that whole process, when he hadn't, you know, he thought, well, uh, you know, I'll play it on piano. And the fact he couldn't play piano in any recognised sense of the word, you know, didn't bother him. I just thought it was astonishing. And it would have been so easy to do something like that and you just get a horrible mess that did sound like rubbish. You know, just like a... But it's... it's, I think, yeah, it's just the the fact that it works and it sounds so good absolutely amazes me now even now after hearing it since for 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 decades it it you know i just find it staggering and even when you go into all the kind of way it was composed and the way that they overlaid the different parts and it might have been in different meters and then john frage tried to come up with drumming that somehow unified these parts even when you look at all the nuts and bolts and mechanics of it there's still something about it which you can't ever demystify. I think there's a weird magic about it, and the fact, the fact, sorry to interrupt, and, and, and the fact that Don genuinely did lay his vocals down with only being able to slightly hear what he was doing, uh, because they, as you might, uh, as has been mentioned before, Gary Marker, who I interviewed for the book, was saying that they were thinking, "What on earth's Don doing? He's in the live room, and he he, he could only hear the studio leakage." So he was around in the, in the, in the sessions, or I think I, I, I think it was, or he, he was relaying this, and they actually put some headphones, lay, lay them in the studio, so he had a bit of a, <laughs> you know, he wasn't actually right. hearing them, but he could hear something coming out of them. And you think, how, how unlikely would it be that that would actually work? You know, it's just ridiculous. But as I say, you, you, there's something about it that I, that I don't think you can ever explain away. And that is part of its magic to me, for sure. The The best adjective I, I have recently heard applied to this this record, I was talking to uh, Samuel Andrea for the, the Fallen Ditch yeah. episode, and, and he described this as an improbable album. And I, <laughs> yeah. I, that, I, I really do think that is possibly the best description I've ever heard. The number of things that had to go right, that had to fall into place for, you know, this guy to produce this music on an instrument he didn't really know how to play and you know the bits with uh, other bits with singing it or whistling it or what have you and to have this band that's committed to rehearsing these 16 hour days you know with little sleep and little food to make this music to having a guy who's willing to put out this record no matter what it is you know Zappa, <laughs> Zappa gave him carte blanche to to produce whatever he wanted to produce and that yeah as you say i mean to to people who I really doubt anyone is is probably still listening to this podcast who doesn't care for the music because we're already at you know we're we're on to um, side three of the album. But um, if you know to people who are hearing it the first time, it can sound horrible. But as you say, with the more you listen to it, there there are the you do eventually get that epiphany of hearing how things fit together and hearing the the underlying structure of what initially seems like chaos and it it's this kind of mind expanding moment of of uh oh it it does have it does have a structure it does have a meaning and then all of a sudden it like pops out in three dimensions for you absolutely and it i mean it even when you're just saying that it kind of almost gives me the shivers thinking about it uh, you know and i'm not exaggerating because you know it, it it's that improbable as samuel andrew have said but it's also I know this won't apply to everybody, but as you say, will to people who listen to this podcast, I presume. It's also a very enjoyable album. I, it I, is. I, you know, people say what, you know, people assume that you're going to play it because it's kind of sort of good for you in a sort of medicinal kind of way. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, but I I actually really like it. I, I find it, and it's very funny. There's so many brilliant uh, puns and, and humorous lyrics in it. And, I know that uh, Don he mentioned to the to the 
English rock journalist Nick Kent, he said, there's a lot of humour in Troutmarice Replica. Do you think they got it? And I think a lot of people didn't because I think one of the problems with it is that is that I think, that, you know, your average rock critic or listener or anyone listening to that will, will be thinking of it in rock terms and they probably won't read the lyrics, which are often kind of bellowed out at such force you can't always hear what Don's singing. So, oh, yeah. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, it's the crazy captain's madcap ramblings or something. And in fact, some of his lyrics are so brilliant. But, you know, they're lyrics that are written on a, you know, the inner sleeve of a rock album. And um, so I think I think that a lot of these, you know, a lot of people just think it's sort of like labelled as weirdo. You know, it's weirdo music and there's both just sort of kind of ranting and just making the you know just making it all up as he goes along but clearly a lot right. of it's far more considered work than that yeah the the brilliance of his of his lyrical abilities and and the the poetry of of the the lyrics and the the humor and and literal wordplay just playing around with the sounds of words and and their you know how they can be put together into these these different different shiny shapes has been uh, a, a pretty consistent one of the things that I've really focused on on this on this uh, re-listen on this project is is just how astonishingly brilliant he was as a as a lyricist and and I mean it, it sounds so silly and pretentious to say to refer to a rock singer as a poet because people associate with like Jim Morrison or something like that but I really do think that that his lyrics stand stand as remarkable works of of lyrical invention if if nothing else if 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 you don't want to classify them as poems they are they are absolutely gold standard of what can be done with the with the lyrics to a rock song well yeah i i'll put in mind of a quote uh grail marcus the the rock critic was talking about lester bangs also mm-hmm. the the rock critic, in uh, as a preface to one of the compendiums of works by Bangs, and he said, uh, something, he said uh, Lester Bangs was one of great of, of America's greatest writers, but you, you know, you have to then add the uh, the, the kind of uh, you, have to, you have to explain, yeah, but he only really that's on the basis of pretty much just writing record reviews, which mm-hmm. isn't it isn't the standard way. That, that people are judged to be great writers. And you could say the same a parallel with Don's, uh, Don Van Vliet's poems. You think, you know, you could accept that he's one of the the, the, the foremost, if you like, or the greatest uh, American poets of the 20th century. And that sounds a crazy claim, but I think it, could, it, you know, it, it it's not far from the truth. But to accept that, you have to think, well, most of his poems were you know, lyrics you'd read on a rock album sleeve. You know, because of course he was always promising these these compendiums of poetry, none of which really came out. Uh, as right. far, or very few. You know, he's always, oh, I've, I've written a hundred poems this week, and all this kind of business, which was kind of obviously somewhat exaggerated. But there were there was the singing ink. He there was a book called Singing Ink. He was supposed to be doing. There was one called the the night my typewriter went da, which is D with about eight A's after it. Um, <laughs> These were these were kind of uh, supposedly coming out, uh, and they never did. And so you have to judge him as you know as an exceptional. You know, I'm saying when he's one of America's greatest poets, it's possibly a bit of an exaggeration, but he's exceptionally good, and that's based upon rock lyrics. You know, which which is, I think, uh, you know, most rock. I, th- I think if we're talking about rock, rock lyrics as poetry, which has been a, a concept that's been kind of bandied around for quite a, quite a lot, he, he he was way ahead of the pack in most respects. I think. Yes, absolutely. I would I would one hundred percent agree with that. And um, uh, I know that when I first played this the the music of the Magic Band. Um, for my mother, who has she has fairly adventurous tastes, but I remember the first time she she heard Beefheart, she was not uh, it it didn't really move her or or she just kind of was like what what the hell is this? But you know she was a um, she's a writer and editor and and a lover of language and an English major, and I remember playing her a cardboard cutout sundown from mm. Ice Cream for Crow, 
and the line about the blue bottle flies were as big as the cowboy's eyes. I remember her just her just having this moment of like, oh, wow, this guy can really write like that is such an such a vibrant image. Mm. Absolutely. And I, I think as Don wanted his music, he often said that he, he wanted his music to be an irritant and, and to break <laughs> and to break up. Up, uh, up the catatonic state. So I think yeah. your, your mother saying what the, exclaiming "What the hell is this?" Would, might be the sort of reaction that he was actually going for. But I think what I think was uh, evident from my researches and reading old interviews is that he wanted to shake things up. You know, he wanted to to stop people fixating on a, a rock beat. He he wanted to break up up this catatonic state, which is meant just people just being kind of spoon fed stuff that was a bit mediocre. But then he also, I think, resented the fact that this didn't get him a lot of commercial success. Oh, well, actually, a fair amount well, more over here, over in the UK, because, of course, Trackwater Replica got in the top 20, which is it's almost inconceivable to think that, you know. It is wild. <laughs> it's just the idea of this album charting at all is, is, is really astonishing. I know. It's funny that I was saying that. I was thinking... Yeah, that is right, isn't it? And of course, even now, it, it, it just seemed incredible. But uh, or was it? Was it? Was it number twenty-three or something? Anyway, you know, it was in the twenties. I think it was, uh, uh, which is just just unbelievable, really. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he also just. <laughs> I always love the his quote was he said he wanted his music to be like sandpaper on a shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's a Van Vliedism, all right. That's a beautiful uh, image, I think. <laughs> Maybe not for the shrimp, but it is for someone who who just listened to it as an image, reading it as an image. Yeah, yeah. Again, his his brilliance with with language. I, I should also add that I, my mother would now probably qualify herself as a Captain Beefheart fan, and she is in fact <laughs> listening to this podcast. So, hi, mom. Um, so the the track that we're discussing uh, today, Sugar and Spikes. Speaking of, um, so sandpaper on a shrimp um in terms of an abrasiveness i was a little surprised because i let people pick the the songs that they they want to talk about more or less and i I was a little surprised this one did not go more quickly than it did because this is one of the more kind of sweet and pleasant and tonal experiences on on trout mask replica It, it mostly sticks within the same key um it uh has some repetition uh, which a lot of the the tracks do not has something uh, resembling a chorus that mm. that is repeated a couple of times with a uh, a lovely rising melody that is is uh, taken directly from from Miles Davis and Gil Evans sketches of Spain. Absolutely, um, yeah. One that one little passage that 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 gets Very repeated. Passage, yeah, that's right. Um, so I was kind of surprised that this one, th- this is one of the songs when I first heard this album that, that, and he's even singing in a slightly less, um, s- slightly less of his, his bear like holler on mm. this song. Uh, it's a little more, a little more of a croon. So I was kind of surprised this one didn't, did not, uh, immediately get, get snapped up. Yeah. Well, I, I think the reason that it's, that it's, uh, it's a bit more approachable and a bit more accessible and it has got, it has got a conventional structure, as you say. It's got like a verse, chorus. And it's got like like a middle bit, and uh, well, actually, yes, it, it is. It's a slightly unusual, you know. It's, it isn't like a bubblegum pop song particularly, but you know, it has got a melody, and it's it's, it's actually got a really strong melody. But uh, from what I gather, from what John French has said, it was actually developed earlier than a lot of the uh, tracks on the record, which would, mm-hmm. would explain that kind of immediately, really. And uh, it's it's got that that drummer then, which is the same sort of rhythm that um, 
was used on a lot of the Mirror Man kind of stuff, like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was it 25th Century Quaker? Or that? It, it's like a sort of, it's like a sort of a Delta Blues type. Well, it, it, it was what John French put to the sort of, uh, kind of slightly jumpy sort of Delta Blues rhythm with, with the, uh, with those hi-hats. Uh, and of course, you know, Sugar and Spice. So yeah, it, it, it's like, that was a rhythm that he he used a lot, and on Mirror Man, you know, you, you know, you know the album Mirror Man, uh, mm-hmm. Mirror Man, Son of Mirror Man, or, or whatever it's called, and yeah, so it it it, it was coming from that that um, it's quite interesting because that era with with those with those long tracks on the Mirror Man album that, that were recorded in the uh, I think it was uh, f- for the uh, sorry which which were recorded. Uh, about the same time as, as the strictly personal tracks, right? Yeah, uh, so that it comes to you in a plain brown rapper supposedly was going to be a double album, but they were very long and rambling. Some of those tracks, but what what's quite interesting, and I, I'm not sure why this is, is that Sugar and Spikes is like a pop song length version of that kind of rhythm. And, uh, yeah, it's compressed down. Yeah, and I think I think it, it's uh, it's a bit too, but. You know, it, it, it's much easier to listen to, but I think the actual lyrics are quite cryptic because, uh, you know, I was looking at them a lot recently and <laughs> trying to f- work out what they're about. Uh, I mean, obviously, there isn't necessarily, you know, there's this obsession with, yeah, what does it mean? And sometimes it doesn't mean mm-hmm. anything other than, other than a, as you say, you know, word plays and words that are put together that sound good in, in conjunction with each other. But uh, it seems to have a very upbeat uh, kind of thing about it. But there's, there's that weird thing about um, I've got no H on my faucet. There's no bed for my mouse, which which is he's actually describing his uh, his house, uh, mm. which I, which presumably you know you know it, you know it's just a cold water place, uh, and it it's like it's it's this odd thing with all these weird details that don't seem to quite. Uh, uh, kind of, I don't know. They're, they're not sure quite how how they all kind of coalesce, but it, but it's like you know, it's got that thing, sugar and spikes, and everything's nice, and everything's nice and crazy. It, it, it's got, a, you know, it's got quite a nice upbeat feel to it. The, the actual lyrics, and uh, yeah, there's a there's kind of a cheerfulness to to uh, a, a lot of the song with the 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 opening, the melody at the the very beginning um, has always struck me as as having a little bit of a melancholy quality to it but then once he gets into that yeah sugar and spikes and everything nice it's very is very bouncy and uh, you were mentioning um mirror man strictly personal the the lyrics about the there's no h on my faucet there's no bed for my mouse put put me in the mind of the the actual song safe as milk where he seems to be kind of singing at least in parts about what sounds like a really horrendous bachelor pad yeah yeah exactly about, like cheese in the corner with a mile long beard or something like that. It's like, yeah, this, this kind of, kind of, uh, you know, really rubbish apartment that we all had when we first moved out from our parents' house. Yeah. Um, yes, that, that's right. It, it seems uh, the, the way I was looking at it and you know, this isn't, I mean, th- this was just my take on it. It was, it just seemed to be like, well, you know, I'm so, sort of living in squalor, but that's okay. Yeah. Everything's fine. And I've got, uh, what's it? Um, uh, there's that. Uh, there's those lines. My punch and grow mind in diamond yeah. time. Now it's king for a day with my lady look fine. So it's like it's always like well you know you know I've got my girlfriend and I love the bit where he goes uh, he goes got my peeking up hat and my caramel mask. I wasn't quite sure what what that was, but uh, tremolo car and I got my spidal wrist around my honey. I thought well, what on earth does he mean? By I've got my spidal wrist, but that must mean he's got his his. I picture him in you know in his car with, with his arm around his his girlfriend's uh, shoulder or something with with a spidal watch on, which yep. I. Uh, so it would, and that's I think that that is one of the things that I really like about his lyrics is that they seem a bit. <sighs> They remind me a little bit, not stylistically at all, but they remind me a little bit of, of Dylan Thomas in the way that you have to look at them a bit and kind of, you know, 
look at them from different angles and you think, oh, yeah, okay, that means that. And that's related to so-and-so. And, you know, you know, you know, my spinal wrist is, you know, his wrist with a watch on. And uh, uh, although the, it ends rather enigmatically with the lines, going to see the Navy Blue Vicar, Paul Peter and Mrs. Ray Flicker. And I found out that there was uh, someone called Justin Sherrill, who, who had one, I think, probably the first Captain Beefheart website called Homepage Replica. I remember it well. Yeah. And he said that he, he was he received a, an email from Peter Ray, because it says Mrs. Ray Flicker with a W-R-A-Y. Mm-hmm. And he said that he thinks that that is somehow a reference to himself, because he, he, he met uh, Captain Beefer on tour in Columbus, Ohio, in 68 or 69. And I think he must have introduced himself. So, I mean, that might be tenuous, but he, he's sticking by it. <laughs> he's actually- it, it's, it seems entirely possible that that entered into Van Vliet's, you know, kind of word horde. And, yeah. and he would he would throw that out as an image. Yeah, I always interpreted those last lines as uh, essentially him and his girlfriend, like maybe going out to a nice party. Like, yeah. the, oh, the Navy Blue Vicar is going to be there and and Paul Peter. And it, there's this whole succession of different characters that get introduced on this album and like kind of briefly introduced and then tossed away almost immediately. Like the uh, you've got uh, Mrs. Wooten and Little Nitty on on uh, um, Moonlight on Vermont and uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the more extended characters, too, like Big Joan and, and the old fart and so forth. But it's just more more faces populating his his uh rogues gallery it, yeah i mean yes i mean it might well be uh that that that's uh i think uh, i i'd always i i would have thought about you know maybe he's going to go and get married but then i suppose you aren't actually married by a vicar so that isn't uh, or are you i suppose you could be i'm not sure that that's uh but it, it's quite interesting cuz the uh the 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 ever enigmatic navy blue vicar clearly meant something to Don because he actually named a painting after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his kind of uh, it, it's a sort of semi figurative thing with this strange navy blue splodgy form that appears to be kind of moving through some sort of color field. So uh, yeah, I think that's going to be one that we'll be musing about for musing on for a while because I'm not sure that um, there's you know is, is there a literal explanation, but. You know, you know, even if they that, even if there isn't, I mean, I, I've always loved that line in the chorus: "The pies steam stale, shoes move broom and pale, moon in a dime store sale." I just think that's 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 beautiful. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that I have any code to crack the meaning or anything, but it's, uh, yeah, I'll go with that. No, yeah, that's that is a beautifully evocative passage and and in the in the spirit of you know the the lyrics being both inscrutable and at times inaudible i had no idea he was saying pies steam stale for the longest time yeah and i I don't actually know what i even thought he was saying in that section it just kind of washed over me but uh it wasn't until i was and there's been a few occasions when i'm in doing this podcast where i'll get to something and i had presumed like for years i had thought oh he's saying this and then i'll look at the lyrics written down and i'm like oh that that actually is is completely wrong there's the (laughs) the line in in my human gets me blues where he says something like uh you look dandy in the sky but you don't scare me i had no idea he was saying dandy for up until the like the day I was recording that episode of the podcast, and I was like, "Really? That's the line? I had no idea." So yeah, yeah. the his brilliance sometimes gets caught up in the the twists and turns of his his uh, in, incomparable voice as well. Yeah, and I, I was you mentioned the uh, the pies uh, steam still do 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 the uh, melody on the chorus being taken from uh, uh, sketches of Spain. By Gil Evans and uh, Miles Davis, the concerto de Aranjuez. And what, what I find quite interesting about that is it's only, as you said, it's only a very, very small part of the uh, of the uh, album. Uh, sorry, uh, of that actual track. You know, right, it's just one little riff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a few bars, really. And he, he picked up on uh, that. And uh, I was speaking to uh, the now sadly deceased Gary Marker about, and he said that, you know, 
Don used to basically kind of hoovered up a lot of culture, and so there would be on on uh, Veterans Day poppy. There's a t- there's a few little bits that come from Ranchero Grande by Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, and I thought, uh, really? And of course, if you listen to that, you you, you can actually hear those little there's some little flourishes, just tiny little details, and. into Don's mind and he would you know I would imagine whistle them to people and uh, so I, I find that quite fascinating that he would he would just pick and think oh that's that's a sort of neat little motif and it would store it away and then find, find a place where he, he could use it You're veteran day poppy That's brilliant. I'm I'm gonna have to listen for that. I, and and I don't think I've ever heard Ranchero Grande, so I'm gonna have to to check that out beforehand. I when I first started this project, I had I had kind of thought like there's a few tracks where I recognized the reference, like he was referencing something um, within the culture, like the the repetition of uh, "Come out to show them" on on Moonlight yeah. in Vermont, coming from Steve Reich. Um, and I, I had initially thought like those moments were rare and they were like these little breadcrumb trails that he's giving you. There's actually a lot of them. I just hadn't noticed them because they're so fast and they're so short and it's almost immediately on to the next thing. So if you if you're not aware and you're not looking for it, you're not necessarily going to catch it like the little bit of shortened bread on. Um, yeah. Uh, Pachuco Cadaver or uh, my friend uh, Ken Shimamoto, who who has been on a couple episodes, was recently uh, working on the guitar parts for I think it was Sweet Sweet Bulbs because he's been he's been uh, trying to learn the guitar parts for Trout Mask Replicant doing a phenomenal job, I have to say. And and he mentioned that um, I'm pretty sure it was Sweet Sweet Bulbs. And I I I I expect I'll have to listen again, but he, he mentioned that one of the parts basically is Alouetta. Um, there's just like this one little, little bit in there that, that seems to be taken from that. So yeah, Don did, does seem to be, uh, did seem to be someone who would, would take all this music in and, and of course he was loath to admit any influence from anyone in, in his music, but yeah, it's, you get these little moments here and there of, of him dropping in things that he remembered or that, uh, he was, consciously or unconsciously referencing to, to listen to the first time wouldn't have any <laughs> yeah you're not going to catch that <laughs> no, no. So it's one of these things you have to kind of you know just go through it i mean i, I think i have to say that uh before I, I wrote the book i never really properly read his lyrics i thought god i haven't pretty you know i've sort of liked some of the imagery but i've never really looked at them you know carefully and uh they certainly do repay scrutiny for sure they do there's it, I mean, in his lyrics and in the music, there's there are multitudes, and it's just this constantly rewarding experience of finding connections that you had never made before, or hearing things you'd never heard before, or noticing how, like the uh, again, uh, I've been speaking with with Ken uh, Shimamoto quite a bit, discussing like really being able to hear the different styles that that Jeff Cotton and Bill Harkle wrote are bringing to their guitar lines you know there's just there's so much uh so many rewards from close and repeated listening to this music which is not something that you can say about a a great a great number of albums now um before we started talking speaking of of uh finding additional meaning and additional connections you you had mentioned that you've been you'd done kind of a deep dive into uh orange claw hammer and and had had dug up some some uh interesting stuff that you had not you had not known before well yes i mean some i think some of this stuff has been has been kind of revealed uh latterly but um there, there, there was just some odd odd things the fact that it's often mentioned that it's it's a bit like a sea shanty orange claw mm-hmm. hammer you know it's the acapella uh, vocal piece on the the, the the first track on side four of, of Trapmaster Replica. And he, 
uh, one of his favourite. Uh, uh, sorry, I've just lost my thread. Yeah, uh, one of his favourite albums uh, was "Blow Boys Blow" by Ewan mm-hmm. Cole and um, A. L. Lloyd, which he said that I think uh, Frank was just Frank was just Apple lent it to him and net, and you know never got it back. And of course, Frank. <laughs> Uh, did a version of the Handsome Cabin Boy, right? Back in the sixties in Studio Z, which is on, on on the Lost Episodes compilation. So, I mean, it's clearly what I love about it is it sets itself up, you know, as it's it's, it's got this weird maritime theme that runs right through it, and uh, there 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 is a lot of imagery that goes back from about the nineteen thirties to the nineteen forties, like. A thick cloud caught a piper cub's tail, which was, uh, and I thought, you know, what's a piper cub? And of course, it is, is actually an aircraft. You know, you know, mm-hmm. aircraft. Uh, you know, a light aircraft that was built between 1937 and 1947. So I love that imagery to start with a thick cloud caught. You know, it's like the clouds actually catching the air, the uh, the uh, the tail of the aircraft as it goes through it. And uh, and then there there is a matchstruck blue on a railroad road that immediately takes you down to ground level, and this this you know the hobo jungle basically all mm. the hobo jungle by the railway lines, and the whole thing about the the railroad looked look like the railroad looked like a Y, uh, letter Y up the hill of ladders. I thought that's that's either it is an inverted Y. So it's you know due due to the perspective you you've got the sleepers and it seems to sort of kind of disappear to a point or maybe there were two tracks that 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 kind of converged and you know immediately with all that it, it'd be it'd be kind of easy to miss all that detail <laughs> due due to his kind of mesmeric voice mm-hmm. but you probably know about the painless Parker but that that's absolutely extraordinary. Um, I mean, he's 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 he he's meant to be this 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 uh, guy with one leg, uh, uh, peg leg. He's mm-hmm. a man wore a peg leg forever, and I love the I love the line: "One shoe fell on the gravel, one stick poked down." Just yeah. him kind of walking around. And that's beautiful. And he he uh, he he goes into town, and he sees this thing. Uh, uh, he sees this kind of barber shop, uh, you know, and above it read read a sign, "Painless Parker." Well, I mean, this might be common knowledge, but I, I wasn't aware of Painless Parker's antics. He was actually he, he was a sort of a kind of celebrity to- tooth extractionist, which uh, I think ra- rather puts him in the field of one, really. And uh, he would he would had the uh, this this circus. It was called the Parker Dental Circus. Where he he would he would go and he, he he would give people who got bad teeth who who needed a tooth extraction he he would turn up in their town and he would give them a whiskey or a cocaine solution that he called hydrocaine <laughs> to kind of numb their jaw and then whip whip the tooth out and he was he said that he would pay five dollars compensation for anyone who felt any pain I thought wow this is pretty amazing. And uh, and he he actually legally changed his first name to Painless, you know, it's quite, <laughs> which is quite extraordinary. Uh, and uh, yeah, he he claims he's, he claimed to have pulled out three hundred fifty seven teeth in one day, which he wore on a necklace. I mean, this sounds so improbable, but this was a guy who was around at the turn of the uh, uh, sort of around about the same time as his imagery. He 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 died in. 1952 and uh of course something else you have to think about is the the fact that some people over in in the u.s wouldn't really understand sorry in the uk wouldn't understand all the imagery like mm-hmm. you know like 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 the piper cub you know you have to go and go and have try and look at what a piper cub is you know, you know and as it isn't capitalized it seems like it's is it, a, is it an animal or something and um with uh Cherry phosphate as well. I mean, I I, I always thought that was something made up. It was it was like some weird kind of chemical, but of course it, it was actually a, a kind of soft drink, which which was again kind of uh, sort of popular, in, you know, you know, you know, in the nineteen hundreds. And uh, 
uh, yeah, it, it's just a kind of you know a, a kind of a soda, and it, it you know what's quite amusing is that he's sort of meeting his his sort of meeting his his daughter, you know he's you know he says sort of come little one with your little dimple fingers, give me one and I'll buy you a cherry phosphate, and and then he. He he goes and takes her back to his ship, which is which is I I, I always love that uh, that line when he goes, <laughs> "I'll take you down to the foaming brine and water and show you the wooden tits on the goddess, which is presumably the ship with a pole out full sail that tempted away your peg leg father." And this is beautiful. Uh, if you actually look at all the the, the strands of the lyrics, uh, the time sequence, it doesn't really make sense because he's 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 been away for. Th- 30 years and comes right. back and meets his daughter who's young. But, um, and I was always quite fascinated by the, the, uh, the line, I'm a roundhouse man. I once was your father when he's, he's, he's telling her that he'd been Shanghai'd and he'd been sort of like, and sort of, sort of taken off to serve at sea on the goddess. And, uh, so I thought that the roundhouse man seems a very kind of quite a jaunty sort of, nautical rank or something but the, but the roundhouse was actually the ship's privy oh <laughs> which which was uh was actually situated near the a bow of the you know of the vessel so it, it, that i thought i thought that is such an obscure little humorous thing you know he was presumably like 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 the ship's janitor or something like that and you know i I do like the fact that the time is the the, the time frame in it is concertina, then it's brought out again, and it's not actually, uh, you know, in, in any way logical. But the, he's actually speaking to his daughter, who he left behind. Who uh, perhaps he still sees her as a little girl. It's very difficult to tell. But you know, he he, he ends the song crying. You know, you know, with the the whole kind of the the, the whole sort of emotional. Um, state that he's in after meeting his his uh, daughter again. I actually found it quite a moving song in an odd sort of way. It's funny. It's got incredible imagery in it. It's got all, all, the, all these kind of, all these hit historical references and it's like a parody of a, you know, of, of a, of, you know, of a sea shanty. And uh, there's just so much in it, which, which would be so easy to miss. So, yeah, I just thought... I, I'd, I'd mention that as well because I, I, I've, um, yeah, I, I, you know, just love that that track. Really, is the reason. <laughs> there, there's um, one thing that that I've discussed with with a few people on the show is if you want to introduce someone to this album and you don't want them to immediately run away screaming, um, presuming that they're not the sort of person who who has a, a fondness for for difficult or avant-garde music what what song do you play them and i've i've tended toward play them one of the acapella tracks because they're they're more tuneful you're not dealing with the the clashing harmonies of the band and you can appreciate the the gift that was his his phenomenal voice and if there is a track on this album that is beautiful in the conventional way that one would define a, a, a music, musical beauty. Uh, I feel like that is Orange Claw Hammer, and mm. that because it is just this this soaring, gorgeous melody filled with, as as you point out, just this treasure trove of rich imagery, all all concentrated around this turn of the century, uh, uh, you know, kind of dreamlike image of the of the the one-legged roundhouse man wandering down into this little town where he got this wealth of of <laughs> images and references to a time where he was not alive is is just uh, fascinating to me i mean hobos and and travel show up all the time in his music yeah yeah this, this is no exception but um and the the song the the image that that lends the song its title, the the an Oriole sang like an orange, his breast full of worms, and his tail clawed the evening like a hammer, is just uh, that. Uh, you talked about chills earlier. Mm. That absolutely stops my breath every time he gets to that line. There's the way he sings it, the image it creates. It, there's no 
there's no word for it other than beautiful. Yeah, that it, well, it is. It is that that always makes that. Uh, I get the chills when he starts singing. The, the, <laughs> the sort of power of his voice is is extraordinary. And you know, I also love the line after that. His his wings took to the air like a bomber. A moraine can caught me a cup of water. Cup of water. Yeah, beautiful. It's so brilliant. It, 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 the the way it goes from. You know this big, this sort of almost like this panorama, and seeing things in distance, like 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 the hill with the railroad on it, and then he'll be, you know, it'll go down to his rain can, you know, because because he's a, you know, as as I'm sure was mentioned before, you know, he he was a, a serving uh, kind of sailor who's now a hobo, and that, that the imagery of the, you know, of the of the aircraft and the match striking on the rail, and the the image of the. Of, you know, you know this Oriole, Oriole taking off, and he's, then he looks at his rain can. You know, it's just yeah. I mean, it, it's it's so brilliant. I mean, I I think it, yeah. I mean, it, it really does stand up as uh, as really good poetry. And um, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think uh, whereas some of his stuff, some of his his lyrics do feel like they were written very quickly. You, you, you can, I think. I just try and think uh, something like "Hey Garland." Oh, it's actually actually off a different album, but "Hey Garland, I dig your tweed coat." Seems like something was scribbled down all these lyrics very very quickly, and imagery that mm-hmm. came into his mind. But something like "Orange Core Hammer," I think it's true that he used to work on these. John French, I think, said that that was one of the things that he really did actually work on at times with the lyrics. Some of them seem to be written off the cuff, you know, when he's inspired, but. Sure. He would he he would get the meter and the the, the rhyming uh, scheme and this beautifully rich kind of uh, sort of welter of imagery that that comes in. But you know it, it's all kind of corresponds and there's all these viewpoints. You know it's not just I say it always makes me a bit sad when people go on about you know sort of crazy ramblings and stuff because that isn't true. I mean, no, like, not at all. No, no, it's not. It's um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and and I mean the uh, another thing. I mean the 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 degree to which this album tends to be um, characterized as being oh, it's it's harsh and difficult to listen to. There's a tremendous amount of variety on this album. Like mm. the it it is not simply you know the clanging guitars at the beginning of Frownland, although there's certainly plenty of that. There's these beautiful acapella tracks. There's there's a straight up blues in China Pig. There's uh you know these uh, instrumental wanderings there's these odd bits of of studio chatter it it really is this this wealth uh, of of an experience um before i let you go because you did as i said before quite literally write the book on on captain b part um i was wondering if there was anything that you discovered in the process of of making that book that really surprised you if there was anything that that just came as a complete surprise and shock and and it was like wow i never would have thought of that there were some very strange things there was there was uh with uh there were the the something that really was odd was when uh don aldridge who who knew who knew don van vliet because he Mm -hmm. lived around that area and uh he said there was a time when uh uh uh, Don claimed that he had sort of power over people and, uh, <laughs> you know, could make them do something, uh, things, sorry, he, he had, that he could make them do things tele- telepathically, which mm-hmm. uh, there, there, was a, there, there was a famous incident when uh, Langdon Winner was round in about 1970, the, the groups, where, where, where the group was staying, and Don goes, oh, it's the phone and it hadn't started ringing. He walks over and as he gets to it, it starts to, to ring. And all these weird, slightly kind of kind of telepathic and strange things around him. But there was something that I always thought was very odd was he'd said that they're outside somewhere. I'm not sure where the actual house. It might have been on Ensenada Drive outside, outside the Trout Mask house. And uh, there, there was someone in a car and he said, you see that guy over there? And the, the guy was in the car, and he was he was backing, and then he was moving forward, and he was backing, and he's moving forward, and I thought, 
it's a bit odd, you know, what's he doing? And Don goes, I'll let him go now. And he drove off. And this guy's like, <laughs> it could be complete coincidence, but it was very, very strange. He, he just said it. And as he said, okay, I'll let him go. He went. And the, and I think uh, Don Aldridge wasn't, you know, wasn't going to be taken in too much because I think that was possibly the idea. But he thought that was just a very weird thing to see. You know, that, 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 that was... Yeah, that was one of the things I, I thought was really, really, really strange. But uh, who knows? It might have been coincidence. But I mean, he loved to he loved to make out things. Uh, you know, I mean, he he would say the most outrageous things in interviews to, to people. And I think, I mean, I, I wish I'd met him. He he wouldn't speak to me to do the book. Uh, he said, uh, and in fact, he said, uh, I think he actually got a copy. His his uh, his uh, gallery were getting. Uh, I spoke to someone who was quite close to him, and he said he would ask Don if he if I could if if he could speak to me. I I sort of shouldn't really say who it was, and then he said I'll wait until Don rings me, so he mm-hmm. couldn't ring Don, and then Don rang rang him, and he said no, he he couldn't speak to me, and then after that I got a a rather terse facts as they used to use in those days from his gallery saying it has come to them that the notice of ourselves and and mr van don van vliet that you're trying to solicit uh interviews for your book by saying that he approves of the project will you know will you please desist from doing this and i i faxed them back saying i've done absolutely nothing of the sort you know this is completely inaccurate well you said i know you said you wish that you had met him and that he wasn't he had no interest in in participating in the book. I, I understand he wasn't terribly thrilled about the Magic Band um, reuniting and playing shows. I don't think so. No, either. No, no. no he was. He was. Uh, he he actually did. Uh, from, I have it on on fairly good authority uh, that he actually did read the book. He said he'd read it, which would probably mean he he owned it and right. uh, then threw it away or something. And he 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 said it was bullshit. <laughs> but it, it would then make me. It, it, it brought to mind his famous quote: "You don't have to get into bullshit to get into what the bull ate." But sometimes you maybe do have to get into bullshit to get into what the bull ate. So, uh, yeah. But uh, I, yeah. So it, it. Yeah. The uh, point I was trying to make, or, or was, or, or I am going to. Sorry. So the uh, point of all that is is that I I, I didn't meet him. But I would have loved to have met him. You know, I used to dream about him. I used to dream about meeting him. It was very odd. Uh, but I, I knew I wouldn't. I spoke to someone who knew him quite well, saying, you won't be able to talk to him. He won't speak to you. I thought, okay, well, I can try. And uh, But what I, w- I was so keen to, 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 to see what he was like, what his, his character was like. Because, mm-hmm. you, know, you, know, you know, back in the day when he was, he was interviewed for... Uh, the um, music press, he would make the most outrageous statements, like he hadn't slept for a year, and all, all these ludicrous things, like self-mythologizing, yeah, yeah self-mythologizing totally and shamelessly, and that he would uh, that he'd never heard the blues. I mean, how <laughs> he say that? And uh, there was one, uh, there's one, one uh, interview heard on French radio that, that was going around on, on, on the sort of collector's circuit where someone said, you know, uh, whatever you say, you were clearly influenced by sax players like Coltrane and Eric Dolphy. And he got quite annoyed and he, 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 he wouldn't have it. I think he actually, I mean, he, he, he was influenced, I think, by the, by the idea of John Coltrane. And he, he famously said about Ornette Coleman, well, you know, if it's good enough for Ornette, it's good enough for me. So he would then j- j- just make a massive racket on the saxophone. <laughs> you know, was, yeah, you know, it, it, it was equal. But it, what what would I love to have of experience was what hit the strength of his character because uh, it's almost like he that whole thing that I mentioned about the 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 him supposedly stopping that guy from driving his car off. Maybe he kind of hoodwinked Don Aldridge somehow. I'm not entirely sure. But he seemed to have an incredible strength of character. And, you know, people in the media just loved it because, you know, yeah. the 60s and 70s, and, and, you know, it was cool to be different and to be strange and to be this sort of this this person who hadn't slept for a year and, you know, 
could communicate with whales and you know had never heard the blues and had never taken any drugs was another one of course and uh, and people people would believe it and pe- because people wanted to believe it really really is the point I'm I'm, I'm trying to make uh, so yeah I mean I I'd love to have had a, I'd love to have experienced a bit of that. Not be in his band, that would, that, 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 that would be nightmarish, but to, to experience yeah. what he was like as a, as a raconteur and, and a character. But, you know, I knew it wouldn't happen. And I think by, by the time I was getting towards the end of the book, he was clearly not in good shape. So uh, right. he was uh, somebody who, who was, you've, you've heard the, the, uh, the interview with Coda Clert is, is, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, the uh, Dutch journalist that, mm-hmm. that was really, that, that, that was available. And he, someone said, well, when they first, well, when they heard that, it was an old friend of, of Don's, they just said that they, they just started crying because they thought, God, he, he isn't, he, he isn't well. So I knew I wouldn't speak to him, but you know, it's a shame. He, he certainly, I mean, he loved to paint himself as this guru esque, figure who kind of had mysterious powers and and you know was this trickster like character who would twist words around and and mess with journalists heads and say all kinds of as you say completely outrageous things what what is always kind of surprising is when there are bits of truth in the the things that he he was he was uh spinning that he actually could seem to tell when the phone was going to ring it is something mm. that more than one on more than one occasion was was demonstrated in in demonstrable circumstances and there's i mean there's absolutely no denying the man was a charismatic presence you can see that on in his stage performances and you know just the fact that he was able to continue to convince people to come play with him even even after it became very apparent that you know he he was uh, if you know to put it charitably a difficult man to work with um but but yeah, it's it's obvious he had a, a a really astonishing strength of personality. I think one um, of the, sorry to jump in. I, I think I think one of the things that that, that just sprung to mind that, that amused me is that speaking to to, to uh, Morris Tepper for the book, and he was saying that there'd be all this. He 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 would come out with this stuff, and you think, yeah yeah yeah. You know, he'd say that mm. he would say that he was kind of Patrick, and he'd. he'd He'd be roll, you know. He said that he'd be rolling his eyes heavenwards, thinking, "Oh, here we go." And Don would come out with some ludicrous claim that he'd seen seen a UFO and he'd seen aliens, and it was like, "Yeah, yeah, all right, Don." And he said, "But he said the weirdest thing is that some of the weirdest things like that were actually true." He said he went into a bar in Lancaster with Don, and this strange guy came and went, "Hey, Don, do you remember the time we saw that UFO?" <laughs> <laughs> and. It, it's like, it was. It's absolutely fascinating. It, it, it seems to. It, uh, this this is also sort of slightly ridiculous thing to say, but it's almost like he blurred the line between kind of. In some ways, there was that funny blurring between kind of truth and and just and, and sort of fact and fiction, really, in a way, mm-hmm. was, uh, stuff that he made up as, as as part of the beef heart kind of mythos, and some of it was true, some of it wasn't, but. It was all seemed to be part of that whole thing. Very strange. As I said, I, you know, I'd, I, I would love to have met him as long as he'd been in a good mood. Yeah, yeah. I was when I was uh, just uh, recording the the wildlife episode, and um, uh, there's the the line about talks and bears and to let me in, and I I made the observation that he must have been very confident in his gift of gab. To believe that he could talk some bears into to giving him giving his space and and uh, my my guest quite quite reasonably said well if anybody could have done it it probably would have been him yes <laughs> that's right <laughs> so uh, when when Darren hosts the show he he rates uh, the tracks um, I've I've said on every episode I rate every track on this album five out of five not necessarily because I love them all equally but because I don't believe you can adequately compare them to anything yeah um uh mr barnes if you'd like to rate this track you are are welcome to do so and if you have uh, anything that you would like to plug or signal boost or or reference here uh the floor is yours i think i might have to give it a five uh 
I can see no reason to knock any points off or even any fractions of points off. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's it. I, I, I've got nothing now. I've, I've got nothing to plug except my book, the the uh, New Day Yesterday, Progressive UK Progressive Rock of the Nineteen Seventies, which is available. At, I was going to say at all bookshops, but all good bookshops. But I think that that that, that concept is long since gone. But uh, yeah, all good online bookshops. Yeah, all, all good online bookshops, and uh, nothing else to plug really. No, I'm just sort of just trying trying to keep out of harm's way at the moment, like most of us, really. Uh, ain't that the truth? Yeah. Uh, well, if uh, anyone would like to follow uh, track by track on Twitter, we are at underscore track by track on Twitter. I am at Joel A Bakker B A K K E R. Same handle on Instagram. Uh, Mr. Barnes, again, thank you so much for your time and for participating in the show. I've really enjoyed it. I, I feel slightly exhausted now, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think it's all that, uh, all, those, all those cold chills, uh, the thought of how extraordinary the whole thing is. And uh, But yeah, in fact, I might go and listen to it now, actually. I, I know the feeling and the, the exhaustion. It's a good kind of exhaustion. It's like we yeah, just ran a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And thank you all for listening. Yes. Yeah.